0: This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Steven Laddick. Dr. Joel Salinecchio is an award-winning physician, innovator, and public speaker who leads the efforts of MAGPIE to develop and promote new technologies and business models for health and international development. This includes the award-winning MAGPIE mobile data collection and messaging software, the most widely scaled mobile technology ever created for international development, with more than 32,000 users in more than 170 countries. Joel is a frequent keynote speaker and consultant in the fields of social entrepreneurship, innovation, public health, healthcare, and the use of technology for development and emergency and disaster response. He has consulted or spoken on these topics at Davos, TEDx, Saifu, Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Google, DARPA, the Clinton Global Initiative, the Royal Society of Medicine, Fox News, and many other venues. He is a judge for the GSMA Global Mobile Awards and for the Classy Awards for Social Impact and is a winner of both the $100,000 Lemelson-MIT Award for Sustainability and the Wall Street Journal Technology Innovation Award. Joel is a practicing pediatrician, as well as a former Wall Street computer consultant and former CDC epidemiologist. In his former role as an officer of the Public Health Service, Joel served as chief of operations for the Health and Human Services Secretary's Emergency Command Center in the aftermath of 9-11. In 2005, he was given the Haverford Award for Humanitarian Service for his work in treating tsunami victims in Aceh, Indonesia. I spoke with Joel in Washington, D.C. Hi, Joel. Welcome to the Terms of Reference podcast. Thanks for being on.
1: Thanks for having me, Stephen. Where am I calling you today? I am in my home in Washington, D.C.
0: Well, I hope that the weather is nice up there, that it's not fall yet, right?
1: No, actually, I think uh, it, is, it is quite fall-like in a very nice way. Uh, the temperature is mild, uh, low 70s, and uh, yeah, it's beautiful.
0: Fantastic. Joel, you have had uh, already uh, you know, quite a storied career, technology, medicine, and computer science many different things. Right now, you're the director, the CEO of a service called Magpie. Let's start by, tell us what Magpie does, what it is, and uh, what it is that you do for that organization right now.
1: I guess for the majority of people who use Magpie, what it does is it replaces paper forms. And so uh, you can imagine, I'm sure, many situations in your life where you have seen people filling out paper forms, or you have filled them out yourself, I actually just went to my doctor recently and the first thing they did was to hand me a paper form to fill out, I guess, any changes that had happened since a year ago when I last saw my doctor. And those paper forms are really the basis for us learning everything that we know about global health and a lot of things that happen um, in many countries and especially poor countries. And because they're made of, because they're paper, um, and because it's so slow to type them into a computer and there's lots of inefficiencies, Magpie allows people to very quickly and very, very inexpensively convert from a paper-based form system to an electronic one where you see the forms on mobile phones or tablets rather than on paper.
0: This is something that thousands of people have tried to do over the last 10, 20 years as technology has become more and more accessible. Is now a time when the stars have aligned and, and, and mobile and connectivity have all come together in a way that this is now possible? Or is there something that Magpie does that does it better than anybody else? Well, I
1: think that Magpie does do it better than others, but it's for a whole variety of reasons. You know, we, we're sort of, we are in a perfect time for this to happen. And we've been in that perfect time for about the last five years. And I think the things that have made it perfect, uh, include hardware, the fact is that you know, 10 years ago, most people that you met, uh, especially, for example, Ministry of Health employees or professional people in poor countries 10 or 15 years ago, did not happen to have a supercomputer in their pocket connected to a worldwide network. And now they do. Uh, and we're not talking about the majority of the population in poor countries, but certainly the majority of the professional population, everyone who's got a job basically has now a mobile phone, which is from the standards of 30 years ago, the most powerful computer that would have existed on the planet back then. And to boot, it's connected to a worldwide and very inexpensive network. So you know, years ago, when we were doing data collection using unconnected things like Palm Pilots, the big difficulty was actually we had to buy all the Palm Pilots to carry around the world to do data collection. Well, now everyone's got something much better than a Palm Pilot, and they bought it themselves and they've got it in their pocket. So we don't have to buy Palm Pilots and and ship them around the world, or buy mobile phones and ship them around the world. This is a—it's just enormous—the fact that both the network infrastructure and all also this hardware has been made affordable and available all around the world. That's um, true. You know, true Palm assumption. Pilots were sold in in the United States and in rich countries because they were for you know rich business people, but not in in poor countries. That's obviously very much not the case for mobile phones.
0: So what's the biggest barrier for Magpie right now? I'm most of the people listening to this podcast right now are familiar with NGOs, UN agencies, as you said ministries that are paper heavy, paper intensive. How do you convince them that this is worth adoption? This is worth the pain of moving away from those systems?
1: You know, it's it's often really not painful to move away from those systems. An object in motion tends to stay in motion and one at rest tends to stay at rest, right? So People tend to keep doing the things that they've always done. I mean, if you could, you put it one way, no one gets fired for doing what they've always done. And typically that's the approach that requires the least energy and the least thought. Well, everybody's, everybody's busy. You know, they've got families. They've got work. They've got all sorts of things to do. And if I came to you and said, Stephen, I, I need you to do things in a completely different way that will be very beneficial for a population of people that doesn't really include you. Um, but from your perspective, Stephen, it's going to take more work and more meetings and more effort. I mean, that's not always an easy sell. And it's not that people say, "Oh, I don't want to do it because I've got too much stuff on my plate, but the fact is people have a lot of stuff on their plate. but I, I think for magpie, it's very interesting. Uh, you know people often ask us, for example, about our competitors in in doing this uh, this type of mobile data collection. And the fact is, um, you know, there's a, I don't know if you've ever read The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen of Harvard, but he talks about non-consumption in, in his books and meaning for us, yes, there are organizations or companies that are creating mobile data collection systems that at least on the surface are similar to Magpie, but most people aren't using those either. And so it's not as if we have to compete against, uh, you know, the the companies making mobile data collection software that seem to be our competitors. Really, what we're competing at is what we're describing. Non-consumption. We're competing against people who don't do mobile data collection at all. And sadly, that's the huge majority of people who are collecting data or should be with regard to international development. But, uh, to be fair, that's also the case for many, many, you know, well-funded companies in, in rich countries. I mean, again, The fact is I showed up at my doctor in Washington, D.C., who's got a very nice office and, you know, I think is making a decent amount of money, and that doctor's office is still using paper forms. So, you know, to say the doctor's office is using paper forms and then to look at some tiny NGO with fewer resources, or for that matter, a large UN organization with lots of resources and say, well, why haven't they led the pack on this? The customer is always right, I guess, in a sense. We have to come up with a, a magpie that makes things easier for everyone in that equation if we expect that equation to move forward, if we expect people to use the software. Really, for me, the last 10 years has been learning, one, that that equation exists, learning to put myself in the head of all of the different people that need to agree with our software in order to use it, um, putting, putting ourselves in the, in the seat of the customer and thinking what they think, and then, again, trying to solve the problem of, okay, if they're not using it, it must be because they we're not making things sufficiently easy for them or sufficiently affordable for them let's make it cheaper let's make it easier and generally that approach i think has borne fruit we you know our users are way up revenues up um and i think it's because we're we're getting better at identifying the problems that are not just our problems but the users problems I think we're also getting better at just in general getting our message out there so people know the software exists. That that can be an enormous problem too.
0: So take me through some of those user problems. One of the best sales tools in the world is a story, right, about how you solved that problem or, or that aha moment. Do you have any of those that you, you, you bring to your users and say, hey, this is how it works? Well, I mean, to be honest,
1: it's fascinating to me, but we sort of live in two worlds. And this is the case for, I think, anyone who works for or in conjunction with a large organization, um, whether it's in a poor country or in a rich country. For example, I'm on staff at a hospital here in Washington, D.C. In my personal life, uh, you know, I've got an iPhone, uh, I've got a nice tablet, a uh, great laptop. Uh, the software that I use is generally a dream. You know, it's fantastic. Uh, my experience in my personal software over the last ten years has been that it has gotten every year cheaper to the point when most of it now is free. The hardware gets better and better and better. The network gets faster. Everything's bliss. Okay, now let's look at the software that we use in our large institutions, whether that's the government or whether it's a U.N. agency or whether it's a a big corporation. I mean, the fact is, generally, the software in those institutions, by any measure compared with our personal technology, sucks completely, completely sucks. You would not believe how bad the electronic medical record system is that I am forced to use
0: when I'm at the hospital. Well, I'm thinking of the, the one that I see most often is the airline industry. You
1: know, well, and, and hey, look, at least it works, right? I mean, the reservation system generally works. Most of the time they don't lose your reservations, right? I mean, you could definitely say the, the reservation system for the airlines is much better than people trying to do the same thing on paper. As, as clunky as it is, you cannot, I do not think, say that about most electronic medical record systems. Theoretically, of course, they're better than paper. But in practice, I, I think they're actually worse in many, many respects. So the thing is, I, I, as I said, for us, you know, looking over the last 10 years, part of it has been when we approach customers, they're, they are embedded in many times in these organizations and they're used to, for example, thinking, let's see, I'm at home and I, wanna, I want an application that's going to show me uh, soccer scores. Okay, I assume, of course, that it's uh, a couple taps away and I assume it's going to be free uh, and it'll take me five minutes to get it. I also assume I will not require any consultants to install it or teach me how to use it, right? I mean, sound familiar, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, can you imagine anyone in any institution saying, okay, I think we're going to get some software for our institution. So I assume, of course, I can look it up online, get it going immediately, won't require training, and it's not going to cost anything. So there is this huge disconnect between the ways that software is provided with, to institutions and the ways that software is provided to individuals. Take me, we, down, the, take yeah.
0: me, take me down the security path there, then. It, that's one of the first places that the institutional brain goes to. Must make this data secure. I, I must control access. I have to know how it works in order to be able to protect my data and protect my users.
1: You mean what do the IT people in the institution think, or do you mean what do the actual uh, regular workers within an institution think? I think the IT people in an institution are generally trying to do the safest thing, and uh, you know uh, it's sort of the same as if you talk to the 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 legal staff in any institution. The safest thing is always to do nothing, to change nothing. mm -hmm. And of course, I think anyone who's ever been in the situation of having people explain to you that it's not safe to to make any change, you have to point out to them that doing nothing typically, at least, conflicts with the mission of the organization, which usually is to do something. And so you you say to the lawyer and you say to the IT person, yes, we do understand that not doing anything would be technically the safest thing, but now can you please show us how we can do something like our mission and minimize at least the, the, the threats, both legal and in terms of IT. I think when we talk to people, sometimes they have issues about security. When we talk to people in a large institution, they have issues about security. But that's not really the biggest obstacle. The really biggest obstacle is explaining to them that software for them to do, for example, mobile data collection can be exactly as easy and just as inexpensive as their personal software. Mm -hmm. And usually when I explain that divide, that dichotomy I just described, even though we're all living in this, we are swimming in this world in which that divide is a very real thing. I find that nine out of 10 times, it's the very first time it has occurred to them that there is this grave distinction between their personal software and the way they get it and what they pay for it and how they learn to use it and, and their professional software.
0: So what's the, what's the next move for Magpie and what's the next two or three years look like? Is it other than, you know, the standard answer of continuing to refine the service and grow the user base? Is there an innovation you're looking at? Is there a technology you're waiting for? Is there something you're developing that you think is going to be yet another game changer?
1: You know, With this, we already talked a little bit about this, you know, profusion of mobile phones all around the world, right? Now, I'm old enough to remember when the profusion was the profusion of personal computers, right? So, you know, back in the late 80s, I was working on Wall Street. I was working for a bank. That was when personal computers started appearing on people's desktops in the bank. Uh, The Internet effectively didn't exist. We certainly didn't use it for very much. And usually when those computers appeared on people's desks, they had just a few pieces of software on them. Uh, typically, a spreadsheet program and a word processor, right maybe a calendar and a calculator. Of course, what that meant was at that time and you know in, let's say nineteen eighty nine if you compare the software that was on those computers with the software that you now use every day, the applications that you really feel are essential to your doing everything you want to do. None of that stuff existed except for the spreadsheet and the word processor and the calendar and the calculator. Well, for the mobile phone this this new platform that is much more ubiquitous than Than the personal computer is ever going to wind up being, for the mobile phone we are we are in 1989, right? We have all these mobile phones all around the world, right? Shepherds have mobile phones, village chiefs have mobile phones, and generally, what those mobile phones have on them are two applications: voice and SMS. Now, as I alluded to before, these mobile phones, and I mean the simplest of these mobile phones, is orders of magnitude more powerful than the computers that the U.S. military had back in the 70s. And yet, generally, we think of them as being not very functional. And so we're in the situation, as I said, back in, like we were back in 1989, where essentially there is a world of software that could be built to run not just on smartphones, but even on these so-called dumb phones. And none of that software has been invented yet, except for two applications, voice and SMS. That's basically, for most people... That have these cheap phones in poor countries. That's mostly it. So when you ask me, what do I think we're going to do next? What else can be done? I think the sky's the limit. You could start out by, for example, thinking about what did I do for the past week on my laptop every day or on my tablet and trying to think of a way to extend some of the functionality of whatever it was I was doing down to someone who has a basic phone. I mean, that would last, you know, that would last you through several careers scheduling buying and selling things etc and of course people are trying to, to they're trying to come up with these apps for magpie in particular i think we've managed to combine if you will the technology model of facebook and gmail where essentially you go to a website you register and you're up and running no training required certainly no formal training required the basic version is free right just like just like using google maps And we've managed to combine that with the business model of Skype, whereby because we're doing this on the internet and the costs are so low, like Skype, we can afford to give away most of our product. You know, roughly 60% of Skype users just use the free version as you and I are doing right now. And, and then the other users pay to do computer to phone calls. Um, but the rates are very reasonable. So, you know, no one has a problem with that. Likewise, we have a similar business model. Most of the vast majority of our users use the free version. And some of them pay, and that supports the whole enterprise. so we've been the first, and are still uh, i'm I'm struggling here, but we're among certainly the only uh, organizations that are trying to address international development or global health issues that has done this, that has said we're going to adopt a new business model, we're going to adopt a new technology model, and we've done it to address issues of how do we get people to collect data better, But there are many, many other things that people need to do with computers both within the international development and global health and, and also in lots of other things. And very few people are actually making headway in, in making those things available. So to give you just one example, uh, mobile messaging. Now, at this point, as a physician, I've read, I don't know, probably in the last two years, I've probably read five or six journal articles in medical journals or international development journals talking about pilot projects where somebody sent text messages to some population to achieve some kind of benefit. For example. Uh, they sent text messages to pregnant women to remind them to show up at their prenatal visits. And typically these are phrased as pilots or studies in which they have a research question and the question, somewhat unbelievably, is if we remind people to do something, are they more likely to do it? And unremarkably, the answer turns out always to be yes. <laughs> the problem with this approach is that it's just pilot after pilot after pilot after pilot. The international development community in many ways is set up To just do pilots. That's the most lucrative thing to do. Build a pilot, write a paper, let it crash, get a grant, build a pilot, write a paper, let it crash and move on to the next one. We don't want to do that. We don't want to write a paper about how theoretically it's good to send messages to pregnant women so that they attend their pregnant, their prenatal visits so their babies are born healthier. We want to make a system so that every pregnant woman gets those messages so that every health system can afford to send those messages. And the problem is that the pilots typically, because it always winds up flying international consultants from place to place, you know, cost $100,000 or $200,000 per pilot. Well, little clinics in poor countries cannot afford $200,000 per clinic. And so getting back to what we're going to do next, this earlier this year, we introduced introduced messaging capabilities in Magpie to, for example, allow people to send timed messages, messages that are timed to things like pregnancy due dates or appointment dates and to do so very, very inexpensively, both with SMS and even with voice so that the messages go out. You know, you can choose, does it go out as a text message, obviously only useful for a literate population, or does it go out as a phone call where someone just picks up the phone and it says in whatever language you want, hey, don't forget to go to your clinic appointment on Friday, right? Again, you know, innovation isn't sort of coming up with something that's good enough to do a pilot with, Innovation means coming up with the business model, the sustainability model, that means you can afford to scale it and people can afford to use it. So we have this approach, which is almost unique, if not unique, within international development of this Gmail plus Skype tech plus business model. And I think there's a million things we can think of that of examples of technology that is useful, but essentially unused, like sending time text messages. And we're going to apply the Magpie model to those things. Um, and and make them not just possible at two hundred thousand dollars a pop, but doable and affordable for everybody's budget.
0: And so, what's the limitation, do you think, for these other types of applications showing up? Is it simply the innovative power? Uh, and I'm thinking specifically, where did Magpie come from, as far as its 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 seed funding? Is it's you know before you were you know had a sustainable revenue base? Where did that come from, and where did the you know, where did the foundation and the support come from to do this? Was it your back pocket? Was it somewhere else?
1: No, no. I mean, so that's a great question. So we were we were originally, we're about 10 years old now. We were originally entirely grant supported. Uh, I, I came out of the U.S. government. I used to be a, a CDC employee. And my business partner and co-founder of Datadine, Rose Donna, came out of the American Red Cross. When we decided we might be able to do something on our own that we weren't able to do within our respective institutions... We weren't thinking about running businesses or social businesses or anything like that. None of us had any experience in business. We just, we thought, okay, we, we're going to need money to make some cool technology and give it away to people. I guess we should apply for grants. Before, so, you go,
0: before you go further, yeah. what was the aha moment there for you and, I apologize, your, the, their co-founder of Datadyne to make the jump from CDC and American Red Cross to say, this is something that we're going to make the jump. We're going to go do this. What was that moment?
1: You know, I don't think it was a moment. I think it's something that it, it was a realization that developed over years. And this is no slight at all to either the American Red Cross or CDC, both of which are great institutions. That they, there are things that they do exceptionally well. I think technology innovation is not one of those things. And I think honestly, it was really a tribute to my own uh, density that I was trying to do technology innovation at CDC for many years, and and shockingly found out that the organization wasn't really with me on that. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, it's not the mission of CDC to do tech innovation. Responding to outbreaks, absolutely, everyone's on board, right? Developing recommendations for flu vaccines, absolutely, that's on board. And so many, many other super important things that CDC does. But at a certain point of basically trying to do something that the organization wasn't made to do, uh, and similarly with Rose, we just sort of realized at the time, and I think at the time I thought, gosh, I can't believe CDC doesn't let me do this tech innovation stuff. What I should have been thinking is, Joel, what on earth, that's like saying walking into a restaurant and deciding you want to exercise. (laughs) <laughs> right sure. the restaurant's not there for you to exercise sure. and if the restaurant if the maitre d seems miffed that you want to exercise or in fact are exercising don't be mad at the maitre d realize where you are right it's not and, the right place
0: and so grant grant funding started datadyne, which mm-hmm. is uh, f- for our listeners is it has evolved into magpie right at, at what point uh, or are you still you know mostly grant funded or are you we're, we're not grant funded, funded? at all mm, congratulations uh, we, We don't
1: have any grants. So, you know, what happened was that over the course of time and, you know, we we received, I I should say the names of our grant funders to whom we are eternally grateful, uh, including the World Bank, especially the United Nations Foundation and the Vodafone Foundation, uh, also the Knight Foundation. And these guys gave us money to do particular things and essentially that wound up being our seed funding. The problem was at a certain point I started. I'm I'm reaching back now about five years. And I started because we were doing technology, but we were doing it in poor countries, like in sub-Saharan African countries, et cetera. I started getting invited to Silicon Valley events, you know, technology conferences at Google, et cetera, because it almost as the novelty act, right? It was sort of like, isn't this kind of funny or cool or cute? Look at this guy. He's kind of a doctor, but he's doing technology, but he's doing it in Africa, you know, I mean, I don't think anybody at those places learned anything about technology from me. They might have learned something about, about poor countries or about health stuff, but I learned an enormous amount. Uh, I learned a way of thinking about what in international development we call sustainability and in Silicon Valley they call profitability. And I learned different approaches to that, things I had never heard before. And I learned it from people who were doing exactly what I thought I was doing, which is running a software company. Right. I learned, wow, well, guess what? There's all these different ways to run software companies successfully. And none of them involve having to apply for grants every year. Mm-hmm. And more than that, we sort of started to notice that some of the downsides of getting grant funding. And, you know, for example, with a grant funder, uh, generally, you know, you get a grant, you know, some big institution gives you a grant. They're not users of your software. Right. Meaning your customer, the people who are paying you, is such and such a foundation and your user is somebody different, let's say a Ministry of Health worker in Cambodia, just right from the get-go, that's a bad situation, right? You don't want all your users to not be customers, to not be paying you money, right? Because the thing is, you pay the most attention to the people who are paying you the money. Well, when you pay the most attention, or almost all your attention, to people who are well-meaning, who are giving you grants, but who are not users of your software and who know very, very little about the end use of the software, it means you're spending a lot of time paying attention to well-meaning people that really can't, through no fault of their own, they c- cannot help you make the software better. Mm-hmm. Now think about a situation where you're buying software from a software company, you know, the sort of the usual kind of situation, right? I mean the fact is that software company, it's existential. They must please you, the customer who is the user. If you're not happy with, you know, let's say some scheduling software, or for that matter, Your mobile carrier or uh, a particular, you know, I don't know, spreadsheet program or, you know, mobile app, you switch to another one, right? So they they have to please you, the people who are actually doing the work on the ground. I I decided after this kind of Silicon Valley inoculation and some thought that all in all, though we appreciated that grant funding, it would be better for us to move to a model in which we were getting at least some of our money from the people who were actually using the software. And then we basically decided to to enact that. So we went from grant-funded and giving the software away to everyone to zero grants and tiered pricing. Free version, where we kind of aimed that trying to figure out a a good free version that would work for about 90% of our users, and then a couple tiers of more advanced versions or more feature-filled versions above that. And we did that about, uh, I guess it's coming up on five years ago. We went from whatever we were making in, in, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in grant revenue to zero revenue, which I don't recommend to people. And you know, and then basically ever since then it's been, you know, we, we, we we hit that bottom and then ever since then every year revenue goes up. So we're at a situation, you know, we were in a situation immediately in which we weren't getting any grants, but we weren't paying our bills, right? We weren't able to bring in enough revenue to pay our bills. Now we're, we more than pay our bills. And 100% of the money that we get is from the people who use our software, which is, again, is quite unusual, if not unique, within folks who are doing so-called you know, technology for development or technology for good. And again, it's just really by emulating Silicon Valley approaches. I think one of the reasons that this is unusual in international development or in global health is that the organizations that typically provide technology within global health and have done so for decades now, they have a business model where they make money by consulting, right? Boots on the ground, lots of training. If you make money by doing consulting, right? And you are making a lot of money. You've got very, very nice offices, maybe in several different cities and beautiful furniture and fantastic benefits, right? You've got a lot of overhead. Well, if you have a lot of overhead, you are not in a position to say, hey, let's switch to a more scalable but much less profitable model Now, of course, it'll mean we're going to have to close a couple of our offices and lay off a lot of our staff and cut our benefits, but let's do that because it's going to be better for world peace, right? Those organizations can't do that. Once you are hooked into that very lucrative consulting model, which is perfectly appropriate for many things, just not for this kind of technology, but you can't change it. It's like me sort of, you know, I've got a mortgage here in DC. I can't say, hey, I think I'm going to switch to a job that pays me nothing. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to actually more realistically say... I think I'm going to switch to a job that pays me 20% of what I'm making now. I I don't have that option. I can't do it. And they don't have that option either. And so the traditional players within technology and international development continue to to pump out pilots and projects and consultant-based technology. And I think what's really the salvation is either organizations like us that may manage to make the switch to a new model, a different business model that's more affordable and more scalable. Or, I see this increasingly, I think Silicon Valley companies, you know, just regular old technology companies, software companies, are beginning to look at the international development sector and probably more importantly, beginning to look at developing countries in general and the populations there and the businesses there and the hospitals there and say, oh, these people are actually not just targets for our humanitarian action, right? They're not just beneficiaries. These are potential customers. True social,
0: yeah, true, true social enterprise thought basically
1: I, 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 exactly well I mean not for social enterprise purposes I think no just but I mean enterprise when, purposes.
0: right exactly but it's enterprise purposes but what I think the world still recognizes is we still in my opinion have this distinction between hey this is a for-profit entity this is a social enterprise this is a not-for-profit when what maybe you see this as well but those three worlds in my mind have already come together, and it's really about how are you serving the population full stop.
1: I, I, totally, not... I totally agree, but that's why I think the distinction between social enterprise and enterprise is not a useful distinct for, distinction to make, because it seems to me that most of the time when I'm talking to people who are at social enterprises or people who are fans of social enterprises, what they're saying is, Let me, the reason we're social enterprise is because of what's in my heart, Joel. Let me explain to you what my motivations are in my heart. And I have generally found that the best indication of what's in people's hearts is what they actually do and accomplish, not what they tell me they are feeling. Mm-hmm. So whether you say that you are a social enterprise, I mean, if you say, I, I know many organizations, they tell me they're social enterprises, but they're still locked in this consultant-based thing, again lucrative but completely unscalable. Um, so again, I, I you know I I take everyone what they say at face value, but I I, I need to as uh, I can't remember who said this, maybe it was Reagan who said, trust but verify. Right. What I want to see is results. And so, you know, I think the, the, the standout example of all this, of course, in our lifetimes is the mobile phone. This is not a charity project or a social enterprise. This is the result of, you know, apparently rapacious capitalistic companies working only to make money. And yet anyone who works in international development or global health, I think, acknowledges that the mobile phone is either the most significant development, beneficial development, for poor populations in poor countries, not to mention us, uh, of our lifetimes, or it's, you know, it's certainly in the top three, right? And again, this is the thing that has had by far the most social benefit to any poor person on earth. And it is not in any way a social enterprise. So we have a choice between either social enterprises that are pure of heart, but don't seem to get anything done, or just regular old enterprises that do get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Again, it doesn't seem to me like the distinction is important. The important thing is, are you getting stuff done?
0: Let's let's spend a few minutes. You you recently rose a, wrote a chapter in a book called The Rise of the Reluctant Innovator. I, even in our twenty minutes together here so far, you've talked about being a physician, being a banker, being uh, you know the head of a technology company. How did you stumble into this world of <laughs> of, of international aid and, and delivering a technology solution that obviously you're focused on global health? You're focused on on that particular uh, facet. Uh, of of where tech, where Magpie can go, I'm sure you have other clients that use it in other places as well. But but how did you get here? What what was that that path?
1: Boy, um, well, first of all, I should say uh, I was never a banker. I was working in technology at a bank. So ah, okay. uh, yeah, I mean, my suits would have been several cuts below the the actual bankers within the bank. But I, I think when I got out of my pediatric residency, I began working at CDC first in outbreak investigation and in other things. But because of what I'd done at the bank, I had some Maybe I always had a kind of technology bent. I had some experience from working at the bank. And at the time when I was starting to work for CDC, we started to get mobile computing occurring. And so it, you know, somehow, you know, when I was sent out in the field to be the person collecting data on all these paper forms, and probably even more importantly, when I was the person who had to type the data from, you know, at the end of a very long hot day, type the data from those paper forms into a computer so that I could do the analysis, It occurred to me, hmm, I wonder if we can use these newfangled, you know, PDAs to do this faster. And I think a lot of people had that idea uh, at the time, or at least several people had that idea at the time. The people that I've talked to, including in conjunction with Ken Banks, uh, who edited that book about reluctant innovation, and who who I was just talking to him this morning, the people I've talked to, you know, it, it strikes me that they see something that makes sense to them, that would make things better in some way, and they can't let it go. They just can't let it go. Like it just, they 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 think of it at odd moments. They can't put it down. They can't let it go. And I, I, I that's sort of how I feel it was for me. I just CDC had me doing a variety of different things. I kept trying to bring it back to doing that. And eventually, I left so that I could I could work on that because as we said, I was trying to exercise in the restaurant, right? But really, to me, it's just uh, for some reason. I guess people see something, they feel that they can improve it, and they can't stop until they do. I remember thinking, you know, 10 years ago when I was considering leaving my government job. I mean, nowadays it seems like a no brainer to do data collection electronically rather than on paper, although most organizations still don't do it. But at the time, I remember thinking I was so sure it was a good idea, even though it was, you know, essentially non existent at the time or almost. And I remember thinking, what if this is the only great idea I ever have? (laughs) Right? I mean, You know, basically I I could stay with the security of my current job. Am I going to be able to live the rest of my life thinking that I had what I what I firmly believed and I still believe looking back was a great idea and I didn't act on it or try to find out if that was true. And I just determined at the time, and I've heard sort of similar things from other folks who've done things like this, that, you you know, you have to know, you have to find out, am I right? Is this a great idea? Will this make a difference? Is this going to create some kind of positive change? And you can't put it down.
0: And so, how did that? How did that lead you to? I guess that you're saying that you know your work at the CDC was in the field. You were, you were entering the data, and that. Do you believe that you were already in the aid and development world at that, at that point, or has that you now have become an advocate for that particular label now?
1: Oh, I see. No, no. I mean, at the time, you know, CDC does global health work. Sure. Global health is often thought of as being. I mean, it's arguable, but it's often thought of as being kind of a subset of international development work. And so, yeah, I was in the thick of things. I mean, I was, you know, doing malaria stuff and, and doing developing country health work for CDC, collecting data on paper, typing it into computers, doing the analysis. And that just struck me with my technology background as such an uh, absurdly inefficient way to do things. You know, I mean, imagine if you walked into the, any, any Fortune 500 company nowadays and you, you walked past the, the accounting department. And noticed that there were no computers and everyone was using paper spreadsheets i mean imagine if you saw that
0: i'm, well, try, I'm trying to imagine that right now
1: <laughs> right i mean you 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 if that company was not i mean first of all you would know that company nowadays would not be a profitable company right so you would know they'd be on their last legs but you would think maybe i can't fix the whole company but i bet you i, I bet you if we move to doing computer-based accounting i bet you that's going to improve the the results for this company well in international development I, I mean, at this point, I've been I've been pushing this for quite a long time, and I don't kid myself. I bet 95% of the field data that's collected is still collected on paper. Mm-hmm. So, so when I was doing it, I just said, there's got to be a better way. And again, I have spent 10 years working with Rose and working with my colleagues at, at DataDine, now Magpie, trying to figure out what are the stumbling blocks? What are the resistance points? How do we get people to adopt this? and And making steady, though slow progress.
0: How is it that you divide your time usually? You said you're assistant professor at Pediatrics over at Georgetown right now. You are the head of of Magpie, um, your board member for Frontline SMS. What's a typical day look like for you, if there is one?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, it's very interesting because when I think when you're a doctor, if you're a doctor and you're something else, people because of, you know, being a doctor, everyone feels like they, they know what that means and they know what you do. And so everyone always assumes that the doctor is the full-time thing and whatever else is the part-time thing. Here, it's quite the reverse. So Datadine has been my full-time job for, uh, sorry, now MAGPIE, we just changed the name, has been my full-time job for 10 plus years now. Uh, at Georgetown, I'm an assistant professor of pediatrics. I see patients in a clinic about four hours a week and the other roughly 160 hours in the week that I work <laughs> is all is all working on, <laughs> on uh, MAGPIE activities. Uh, of course, I, as you mentioned i'm on the board of Frontline, and that's you know usually a, a commitment of some hours per year, but certainly not on a weekly basis. So you know the average week for me, I mean we could be dealing with everything from business development issues that is talking with new folks who are going to be using magpie, talking with our tech team who's based in Nairobi, a fantastic team, both for tech support and also for our programmers, just a great a great group of people. I just got back from Nairobi and I, I just can't tell you what a pleasure it is to work with. Our team, because everybody is super competent, everybody is respectful of everyone else's competencies. competencies, Pardon me, and we get things done. Um, So, you know, a a good part of of my week, uh, usually about three times a week, I have Skype calls with uh, our Nairobi team. Sometimes the topic of those calls will be kind of our product roadmap and where we're moving in terms of our next steps and features we're adding. Uh, Sometimes it's reviewing what our recent tech support uh, requests. What are things people having a, that people are having a problem with? Um, and if people are consistently having a problem with something, how do we solve that? That is to say, is that is this a bug that needs to be fixed? Is it a bad design on our part that needs to be corrected? Is it something that could be made simpler to the user through better design or perhaps through better support materials or training? This, again, it's interesting because even the excellence we try to achieve in terms of customer support gets back to our business model again. And what I mean by this, um, I heard Jeff Bezos speak and he said, he felt that every time someone at Amazon, anytime an Amazon customer had to speak to a human representative at Amazon, he considered that to be a massive system failure. Right? now we all know that Jeff Bezos, uh, whatever else he is, is certainly not against the idea of good customer support. Most of us who've purchased something from Amazon have gotten great. You know It's been a very painless, easy, even enjoyable process. But what of course he means is that it's not scalable for them to have every single one of their millions of customers talking on the phone with a person. They have to make it so that everything goes smoothly and and the vast majority of customers never even think about needing to use custom, customer support. And likewise with us, you know, we provide more mobile data collection services in international development than probably all of the other providers combined. 33,000 users, I think, as of as of this week. If we were to have all of those users requiring training or tech support, we could never provide that right I mean our, we would never be able to to work our way through that list and so, so we so we have to design a system that means that most people get exactly what they want without the need to ask for customer support or training.
0: One of the questions I love to ask on these podcasts, and I, I ask it to everyone over over the last ten years, it seems like it's been a gradual growth and gradual success one after another. You, you were just describing how some uh, you know a good portion of your time is looking at bugs, looking at things that need to change. When's the last time that you had a significant failure, either in the software or providing the service for a user or, or a base of users? And what did you do about that? How did you, how'd you sort of turn that around and learn from it or, or create a success out of it?
1: I mean, to me, the one that really sticks out is about two years ago, that was when the software was still called, I'm trying to think if that was when it was called EpiSurveyor or we'd already changed the name to Magpie. But we put in place a new system for basically putting logic into a form, you know, the kind of thing where if, it's, if they answer this, then jump to that. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, effectively, we, we didn't test it enough. And so we, we began having lots of users get back to us and say they were having trouble with that logic. I mean, this was entirely our fault and not the user's fault. But I can tell you, and again, this gets to the issue of of where your funding comes from. The thing is, if we don't have users, then we don't have paying users. If we don't have paying users, then we all have to go get another job. I I remember going through a period of a couple months where every morning I'd wake up, roll over in bed, pick up my phone, and open my email, dreading to do so, knowing that there were going to be 10 or 15 or 20 customer support requests, because at the time I was routing all the customer support requests so I could at least see them. And do you know what it's like to wake up in the morning with 20 people, 20 angry people complaining about, you know, your life's work? Mm -hmm. People who in many cases were trying to do something in the field that had been planned for months and were running into a problem because of a mistake that we made.
0: And in today's age, those 20 people have just told their 20 friends or their 200 friends on Facebook, right?
1: Oh, oh absolutely. But I mean, at the time, it, you don't even think that way. You just think, I mean, every one of those users that you have disappointed, you know, you've failed them. You know, you have this relationship with them where, you know, it's quite clear. We have said, we're going to help you do this. And we have failed to do it. I could tell you that is, that is very hard. Um, it is emotionally hard. Uh, it's psychologically very difficult. It's depressing. Obviously, it's not to our credit that we let the mistake happen in the first place. I think the only thing to our credit is that we didn't crumble or dissolve into a bundle of tears, but we mobilized, identified the problem, worked to fix the problem in the fastest possible way. And uh, in many cases, you know, did everything that we possibly could to make it right with the customers and the users that were out there. But again, this gets back to this issue of the of the business model because this was not only a question where we felt like we had done something against the trust of, of our users, which would be bad enough, but added to that, this was an existential threat for us. If we had been grant-supported, it would have been the first one, but it wouldn't have been the second one. right? Mm-hmm. There would have been no risk to our existence as an organization because our funding wouldn't have depended on how well the software did its job.
0: The, the last question I always ask every Terms of reference, uh, guest here, deals with helping others achieve what you've achieved or take that leap into international development or humanitarian aid work. Is there a critical piece of advice or something that you counsel others on when they're either considering making a transition, making a jump like you did from a you know a nice stable CDC job to you know an innovation like this, or just you know somebody coming out of a master's degree who wants to get that first job about? how to make it happen, and, and uh, what you look for when you're, when you're looking to hire someone?
1: Well, I mean, so that's a lot of different questions, right? I mean, you know, we're a small team, and uh, we don't often need to hire. Our last hires have all been technological ones, right, programmers, etc. Although, we, we, obviously, we do from time to time increase our staff. But, I mean, in terms of uh, giving people advice for whether they, whether they should leave their jobs, you know, give up a comfortable position to risk something else, I'm not sure if advice is what sort of makes that happen. Again, I think you've either got that, you know, thing burning inside of you that won't let you not do it or you don't. I just, I mean, I, I, you know, when I was considering that, I just, I just couldn't sleep. I just felt like, again, you know, this is a great idea. What if I don't do it? What if I, you know, am I just going to say, okay, I'll just show up at the office every day and go through my office job and not get stuff done, not get this thing done that I think could really be a game changer. Again, that, that either really affects you or it, or it doesn't. And it, I, I mean, I, I should also say that, you know, for me, though it's, it was a very significant decision, seemed like a big decision at the time, felt very risky, for example. But I also have to say realistically, as a, as a licensed physician, I'm very wary of advocating that other people quit their comfortable, safe, secure jobs. Because for me, obviously the, the worst case scenario is I go and I work as a doctor someplace in a hospital. Which is hardly a worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for other folks who don't have that kind of ace in the hole, you know, they, it could, there could be much more significant impact if they, if they were to give up their security and then, and basically fail to do what it was they wanted to do. So I know that that information, of course, is not going to be a, it's not going to make any difference to the people out there who really have the fire in their belly that want to make this happen because nothing I say is going to be able to stop them or make them go. Uh, we can offer encouragement, but we, we certainly wouldn't be able to stop them through the simple, you know, s- simply giving common sense advice. People like that are going to do it, whether or not anybody thinks it's a good idea or not.
0: You're an inspiration for other people. Who do you look for, look look to for inspiration, or or who are you watching right now as innovators that you say, "Wow, I think they've got something"? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. You know, I think I think for me, it's not just innovators. I mean, I think the people that I pay attention to, the people that I watch are first of all technology people. Um I think the stuff that's happening out of Silicon Valley, though sometimes, you know, everybody complains that some of the stuff is trivial. But let's face it, I mean they're transforming our lives in lots of really important ways. Um, the the internet, we're we're really only starting to get the 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 impact now, only starting to have the slightest idea of the impact of mobile and the internet and how that changes things for people. Having a, you know, again, a, a really ubiquitous worldwide network of of computers in people's pockets. So I, I pay a lot of attention to what happens in Silicon Valley, uh, not social enterprise in Silicon Valley, just businesses in Silicon Valley. Along the same lines, I'm a huge fan of uh, the fellow I mentioned before, Clay Christensen at Harvard, whose book, The Innovator's Dilemma, really, when I read it, laid off a roadmap for us uh, in terms of how to proceed technologically and in terms of business model. That book is about how disruptive innovations, disruptive technologies included, how they're able to succeed. And honestly, the when I read that book, I thought, oh my God, this book is about us. So incredibly, incredibly useful. So just about everything that, that Clayton Christensen writes, I read. Um, and then there's folks, I guess, closer to home. I mean, uh, folks within global health, I mean, organizations that are doing great work, I'm constantly trying to pay attention to what they're doing because they are our end user, either currently or potentially. And our whole job is to try and figure out a way to let them do their work in better ways and faster ways and less expensive ways and more scalable ways, many times in ways that they themselves are not in a position to picture uh, or imagine uh, paying attention to them. There's not too many folks who work within the technology for development field, uh, to be perfectly frank, that I that I take a lot from because most of them are working on you know the kind of the model of how can we get more grants to do what we do, and we're not interested in that. Many of them are doing good work, and I I think that's great, but it's just not the approach that we're taking, so it's not very useful for us to to learn from them. I I would say that certainly we've we've talked about Ken Banks, uh, reluctant innovator, editor, and the founder of Frontline SMS. I mean, Ken is someone that I have not frequent enough, but certainly frequent conversations with, and I always find uh, to be a great sounding board and an innovation kind of leader uh, that you know, is a great person to talk to about this, so I would certainly count Ken as being uh, among the the influences. Yeah, I mean, that's about it. I I pay tons of attention to, you know, technology, especially mobile technology, uh, internet, (laughs) Clay Christensen, who's kind of, you know, a a heading of his own, and uh, yeah, and a couple people within international development and, and our customers.
0: Joel, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. No,
1: it's been great. I really appreciate it, Stephen.